Welcome to our podcast, Oncology Morning Commute, Managing Therapies for the Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Patient. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects of Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck. In this podcast, Beth Sandy and Marianne Davies continue their discussion on non-small cell lung cancer and immunotherapies. How do you choose and schedule the best treatment for each patient, and how should toxicities be managed? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC6. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Beth Sandy is a nurse practitioner with the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Marianne Davies is an Associate Professor of Medicine and a Nurse Practitioner at Smilo Cancer Hospital in the Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center in New Haven, Connecticut. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Beth Sandy will begin our discussion. Okay, welcome back, um, Marianne. Uh, we covered a lot of ground in our last two podcasts talking about um, first molecular profiling and then how we use immunotherapy, uh, whether single agent or combination. Um, let's talk a little bit about patient management and the treatment responses and side effects, um, especially the toxicities to watch out for. Um, I think to start, we'll just talk about um, you know, everything we're trying to do is fostering, you know, shared decision-making and the patients being involved in that. Um, you know, I think there's a couple things on prepping the patient about, you know, when they're likely to see a response and how often they have to come in. Um, you know, during COVID, some of these immunotherapy drugs have come out with new dosing schedules. Um, now switching from every three weeks to every six weeks is a possibility or every three weeks to every four weeks every two weeks to every four weeks, broadening that interval between the time we bring them in. Um, just take pembrolizumab, for example. Um, we can give it every three weeks, or we can double the dose and give it every six weeks. Have you done that? And what has been your experience with that? Do patients like it? So that's a great question, Beth. And yes, we have had um, the opportunity to make that treatment decision. Part of that is going to be based on the patient and their um, how stable they are. And so if I have a patient who is very um, medically stable, um, then I, and they don't want to come into the clinic quite as often. And also if they're very reliable in terms of reporting any potential side effects, um, we may consider increasing the interval in terms of, of the dosing. However, um, if a patient has uh, underlying uh, comorbid medical conditions, if they're uh, experiencing any kind of toxicities, even if they're subtle, um, then I, I'm less inclined to increase the interval for them coming in because it's incredibly important um, that we monitor patients closely uh, on the immune checkpoint uh, therapy. While typically very well tolerated, um, the toxicities um, can become more serious or even life-threatening if they're not acted upon and managed in a very swift fashion. So um, again, if a patient um, has a good support system, if they're reliable um, in terms of their ability to report any, the onset of any symptoms, then I might offer them uh, an increased interval of the schedule. Um, and you know, if they live, like, let's say, far away, uh, <laughs> 
And the other part that's, you know, if they live further away, um, collaborating with their primary care providers in their, in their areas to assist with monitoring of toxicities can be very, very valuable. Yeah, um, right now, oddly that he is having a little bit of trouble swallowing. He's just not really sure why. Um, he said he feels like food gets caught in his throat. Now he's only every six week dosing a pembrolizumab. And I don't want to wait six weeks to see him. I'm hoping it's not a rare myasthenia gravis, but it could be. So now we're in the process of working that up, but that's not someone I'm going to say, yeah, I'll see you in six weeks. I'm sure it's fine. Um, so yeah, I would, I would agree with you. It's, you know, you have to take really each patient individually before we decide to do that. And then Marianne, you had alluded to prepping the patient about a treatment response. Can you briefly touch on that? So certainly, um, you know, many of our patients, if they, you know, if we've, had all of these new novel therapies that have come to market in the past several years. So um, not every patient has uh, prior experience with said toxic therapies, um, but some may have, ex you know, have heard from other, you know, family members or friends or whatnot. Um, oftentimes patients come in and they get their treatment. And the first thing they ask is when am I going to know if this is working? Um, how often do we do scans so that I understand if I have a response? Cytotoxic therapies in general, we might see a response within six within even six weeks of therapy. Um, however, in general, uh, the responses to treatment uh, from immune checkpoint inhibition tend to take longer because it's that activation, the underlying mechanism of action of activating the body's immune system um, to, to um, go out and uh, lead to tumor death can take much longer. And so sometimes it can even take 12 weeks and even 16 weeks in some cases to actually see a response. So setting that expectation for patients is of critical importance um, so that they're not disappointed on that first, depending on when the first set of scans are, are going to be scheduled. That's a great point. So let's move right into toxicities. Um, I think the one I really want to start with is, is pneumonitis. Um, you know, these are the immune mediated adverse events. So I'm not talking about fatigue, nausea. Um, you know, those are some of the common side effects that we see with all cancer agents, but the specific ones that are related to um, the immunotherapy causing uh, inflammation within an organ system. So pneumonitis is one that we see more commonly in our patients with lung cancer than they do perhaps with melanoma or breast cancer or GU cancers, where we also use immunotherapy, but they're seeing lower rates. You know, I think it's likely because the organ that we're treating, um, the lungs, a lot of these patients have had radiation to their lungs before. You know, my patients will often present with a pretty quick onset of dry cough or shortness of breath. It's something, and they're often hypoxic. So knowing what their baseline pulse ox is before they develop this. And you can see it very easily on a CAT scan. I mean, when you get that CAT scan, this is a pretty obvious drug toxicity or organizing pneumonia, which is an inflammation within the lungs, our radiologists often call it. Um, Marian, what has been your experience with patients developing pneumonitis, how you're treating it? So that's a great question and particularly challenging in this time of COVID because the, um, the really the diagnostic imaging um, can mimic um, other inflammatory processes in the lung. Um, many of our patients do start out with uh, interstitial lung disease and so their, their CT scans are not clear to begin with. But um, typically, that you know, more of the classic patterns on CT scan for patients are going to be kind of patchy areas of what we call ground glass opacity, so kind of mimicking that that organizing pneumonia. Um, and so, 
it's important when we're ordering our scans that we let the radiologist know exactly what we're looking for, um, what our differential diagnosis is, um, so that they can speak to those specific findings on the CT scan. Um, we work very closely with our pulmonologist in helping to manage um, this specific toxicity. Um, as with any um, immune-related adverse event, what we want to do is rule out other causes first. So immune-mediated or immune-related adverse events are really a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's an inflammation of any organ system, as you mentioned. So you rule out um, any infectious causes or any other um, kind of insults that could have happened that have, that have led to this. And once um, in your differential, you've diagnosed this as an immune-related adverse event, we hold immune therapy. That's the first step. And then uh, specifically, if it's uh, grade two or higher, um, meaning it more significant or symptomatic. Um, and then typically we initiate corticosteroid therapy. That is really the mainstay of how we manage these toxicities because what we're trying to do is suppress the immune response and uh, suppress that autoimmune attack on normal healthy tissue. Um, and so um, again, steroids are gonna be our mainstay. We monitor the patients very, very closely. Um, for... Can you be more specific? What steroid do you normally use? So methylprednisolone, a typical, typical or um, prednisone equivalent, and it's typically a milligram per kilogram per day. And patients stay on that, you know, if they're more symptomatic or um, hemo hemodynamically unstable, they might get admitted to the hospital for IV steroids. But if they're stable, we can treat them as an outpatient. And again, this is something that they stay on that dose until the toxicity is reduced to a grade one or less or recovered. This is not a medrol dose pack. And that's what's really, really important for those in the community. Patients have to be on this and oftentimes they may be on that dosing for at least two weeks before they have recovery or improvement. And then it's a very slow taper over four to six weeks. Sometimes it takes even longer to taper it down very slowly to assure that there's not a flare of the response. So whether it's pneumonitis or any other um, organ inflammation, the corticosteroids are the treatment of choice. And once they're tapered off, you can make a decision as to whether or not we re-challenge with immune checkpoint therapy or if we need to make it uh, permanently discontinue. Um, and if patients don't respond uh, within the first few days, then additional immunosuppressive agents uh, may be used um, to help uh, suppress that. One of the things I just want to, you know, we educate our patients and we, you know, they're nervous about reporting uh, symptoms, but it's really critically important that they report these symptoms at the onset. So typically if the earlier they're diagnosed with a toxicity, um, the better our outcomes are in terms of treating it. Um, and they need to be reassured that even if they need to start on corticosteroid therapy, it does not negatively influence their response to that immune checkpoint inhibition therapy that they had gotten. So there've been several studies that have uh, demonstrated and they can still retain therapeutic uh, benefit from the immune checkpoint therapy that they had received. So that should be um, just reassuring. So you're saying you can not, you know, just because you're giving them immunosuppression doesn't mean that it's going to completely counteract the benefit that they received from the drug. Exactly. And then would you re-challenge them with, let's, let's stick to pneumonitis now. Say they had pneumonitis, you did, I would say, four weeks minimum of a, of a prednisone taper, and then you've re-challenged, do you re-challenge them at that point when they've recovered and they get down to being off of steroids? 
If they had a grade three or four toxicity, no, that's not what's recommended in the, in the guidelines. Grade two is a gray area. Um, I think part of it depends on if they, if on your scans, you also showed therapeutic benefits. So did their tum did you have tumor reduction? Um, again, that's another point of shared decision-making. It's a really gray um, caution, caution area in terms of yeah. challenging. So it's really case by case, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, moving on to colitis is something that we probably see a little less of in lung cancer as opposed to melanoma sees more of this. But, um, you know, I had a recent case, it's an ongoing case of a gentleman with colitis right now um, who has been refractory to high dose prednisone. Um, we did finally get a colonoscopy, which which very much shows active colitis from immunotherapy in his bowel. Um I'm really into getting fecal calprotectin now. This is such a good marker to show, um, it has been for this case anyway, to show it was so, so high um, at the peak of his colitis and he really hasn't fully recovered. And you can see that the fecal calprotectin is still pretty high. Um, we have moved on to infliximab, which has not really helped. Um, we're working really closely with GI, um, which they've done a lot of really crazy stuff, like some steroid enemas, um, moving on to some mycophenolate mofetil or tacrolimus type drugs. Marianne, what has been your experience with colitis um, briefly? So briefly, um, as you mentioned, colitis occurs less frequently in the non-small cell lung cancer population than it does over some of the other diseases. But um, you want to move quickly. If a patient is refractory um, to initial corticosteroids within a few days, you want to begin to think that you need another immunosuppressant therapy. I think that's key. Um, and also um, collaborating with our other um, subspecialists and helping to manage these toxicities, um, as you highlighted, is, is critically important. Um, and the other thing I want to highlight for those that are in the community is that we have a lot of experience at the academic center in managing these toxicities and we've got our subspecialists there, but there are many um, clinical practice guidelines that have been developed by um, national organizations such as the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, um, Society for Immunotherapy and Cancer, um, ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology, that can help guide you in a step-by-step -step approach in terms of how to assess these toxicities and how to intervene. So I highly encourage people to use those clinical practice guidelines. Okay. And lastly, let's kind of wrap up talking about the endocrinopathies, which are probably the more common thing that we see, um, you know, getting a baseline T TSH and then finding hypothyroidism partially through. I mean, this, this happens fairly frequently. I think, I think the package inserts say 10 to 20%, but I feel like it's more common than that. I don't know why. Um, a lot of times with the endocrinopathies where you're seeing hypo or hyperthyroidism or adrenal insufficiency, um, we don't necessarily jump right to prednisone for these patients as opposed to just replacing the hormone. Uh, Marianne, can you give us a couple minutes talking about what the mechanism there is of the immunotherapy toxicity on these endocrine glands and how you might manage that? So again, inflammation of the organs, um, particularly let's focus on thyroid since that's more common. Um, typically what happens is you've got inflammation of the, of the thyroid gland. Patients develop a hyperthyroid uh, picture and then eventually um, that thyroid gland, um, after being hyperactive for a bit of time, will then lose its function and the patient will become hypothyroid. And that is a permanent um, immune-related adverse event. The patient will stay hypothyroid for the rest of their life. Um, and you highlighted, Beth, that 
endocrine is a very unique um, uh, toxicity and typically we can manage this with hormone replacement um, and the patients can successfully go on to be rechallenged or even stay on the immune checkpoint inhibition therapy, um, but needing, being aware that they need to be on hormone replacement for the rest of their life. Yeah, I think that's true. And then, you know, hepatitis nephritis, we didn't talk really a whole lot about this, but again, same idea, the immunotherapy that overactive T cells are attacking either the kidney or the liver. And one thing I'll say about this, you know, we're, we're checking the labs, the comprehensive metabolic panel every time they're coming in. And these transaminases, especially the AST and ALT, when we're seeing hepatitis inflamed liver from immunotherapy, it's usually not a subtle rise in those transaminases. These will go from like normal AST and ALT of around 50 to suddenly being 300 or 400 in a quick period of time in three or four weeks. That's kind of a, you know, a red flag to me saying, oh my gosh, you know, this went from being really normal to really high, this is probably immune induced. Um, and most of the time we don't necessarily see their bilirubin go up. So you don't necessarily see them become jaundiced or anything like that. So it's a true transaminitis that again, we would use those high doses of steroid like prednisone and then slowly taper them. Um, same thing with a quickly elevated creatinine, you know, in the absence of them being dehydrated or just not drinking, um, we would use those high doses of prednisone. So I think really to summarize, we definitely need the help sometimes of our colleagues in, you know, GI or pulmonary to help us manage some of these things. But I will say, you know, what Marianne said, look at the guidelines that are out there. Look at those guidelines. I mean, those guidelines are going to tell you how to manage them. And Marianne was on the NCCN guideline committee for immunotherapy toxicity. So you're really hearing it um, right from someone who developed these. Um, any parting thoughts, Marianne? No, I think that just one uh, little caveat to just be aware of is if patients are on combination therapy, it becomes a little bit more complex in uh, understanding the differential about uh, what is causing the toxicity, chemotherapy versus the immune checkpoint therapy. So really reviewing the timing of the onset and the pattern of that toxicity will be helpful um, in, in determining the management. Yep. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this, uh, you know, very quick overview of toxicities from immunotherapy. Um, and we look forward to um, doing this again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC6. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.